For our time in God's Word, I thought it might be appropriate to choose a text that continues on that theme of the faithfulness of God. I invite you to turn to Psalm 30 in a message that I've titled, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Psalm 30 will be our text today. It is a psalm of David, it says in the inscription, a song at the dedication of the temple. And I'm going to read all 12 verses and then we will go through it together and be strengthened and encouraged in the Lord by what he has for his people here this morning. David says in Psalm 30, reading out of the English Standard Version, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may, carry, may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. As you read this psalm, at first glance, at a superficial, quick reading, it seems to lack a logical progression. How does one section build on the other that preceded it? But the pieces fit together when you see the overall theme of praise that David is trying to communicate, and that he does communicate with perfect clarity because Scripture is clear. Scripture is, has perspicuity. If you look at verse 1, you'll see that theme of praise. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. In verse 4, you see, sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints. And so it goes from David's personal expression of praise to calling others to join him in praise. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. In verse 9, he asks a rhetorical question on the other side of the equation. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? We'll explain that text a little later on. For now, I'm just asking you to see the theme of praise that connects these sections together. Finally, in verse 12, He says, you have turned my mourning into dancing so that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. If you ever wonder what you're going to do in heaven for all of eternity, part of it will be the glory and the blessed privilege of giving thanks to your Redeemer without cessation. So there's praise, praise, praise woven throughout the structure of this psalm. What does it mean to praise God? Is it a matter of emotional lifting up of hands and swaying to the beat? 
as the lights go low? No. To praise God is intelligent worship. It is thoughtful and understanding response to Him. To praise God is to declare His exalted nature and to thank Him for blessing you. God, and there are three G's that you can always structure your praise around if sometimes you lose track of your thoughts. God is great. God is good. God is gracious. God is so great that His glory fills the heavens. God is so good that in the person of His Son, He came to earth to offer His life as an atoning sacrifice for His people. God is so gracious that when you cried out to Him for mercy, He graciously received you when you least deserved it, forgave you, imparted new life to you, made you His child, secured you forever. Why, you can't separate the greatness from the goodness from the grace. So great as to have power over the dead and to rise from the dead. So good that Christ offered Himself as a sacrifice. He didn't send a proxy to fulfill the justice of God. He let the stroke that was due to His people fall on Him. He loved us and gave Himself up for us. That's good. And grace, unmerited favor, extending kindness where judgment is due, God is great, God is good, God is gracious in and of Himself, and so we ascribe praise and thanks to Him for that. As we come to Psalm 30, we've seen that the theme is praising God. And the question that we want to answer is why in this psalm, in Psalm 30, is David praising God? And why is he calling others to do the same? And we'll see four aspects of God's faithfulness that lead us to praise. We just heard the instrumental, and you recited the lyrics in your mind as you did. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. As we look and look to get specific for the reasons that we thank God for His faithfulness and we praise Him and we extol His name for that, what do we find in this psalm to inform our praise even more? First of all, first point for this morning. You see, praise for God's faithful answer. Praise for God's faithful answer. As you open this psalm, what you see is that the Lord in the past had rescued David from an illness that had threatened his life. Look at verse 1, where he says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Lord, you drew me up. David had sunk low into a condition from which he could not get himself out. God's deliverance of him was like pulling a bucket up from the well. The bucket goes down deep to where the source is, and then you draw it up with fresh water. David says, my life was like that. I was was down deep. I could not get out. And Lord, you, in your faithful goodness to me, reached down and helped me. It was like you pulled a bucket from a well. What he's doing here is this. He is giving full credit to God, and he gives just passing notice to the enemies who had enjoyed seeing him suffer. Look at it there in ver- again in verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Beloved, What David is saying is, God, you heard me in my distress. 
I could not help myself, and you saved me. David looks back, as he writes this psalm, he looks back to that prior episode in his life, remembers his cry for help, and now gives God thanks for having answered him. He recalls the healing of God in verse 2, when he says, O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. His past condition was so desperate that he could have literally died. Verse 3 says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. He was on the brink of death, and the Lord intervened in response to his prayers and saved him. Now, from that, it appears that David at that point is talking about a physical deliverance that the Lord gave him, certainly appropriate for us to give thanks for those physical deliverances. But beloved, understand also that it gives us a picture of the the nature of our spiritual deliverance when God saves us, when the Spirit draws us to Christ and seals us in Him. There you were, low in sin, guilty and knowing you had no excuse, either guilty from a life of self-righteousness and false religion or guilty on the heels of yet another episode of sin. And God convicts you and you cry out to Him with no righteousness of your own to offer to justify yourself, to prompt God to save you. No, you cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what did he do? What does he do to every sinner that calls upon Christ? Everyone who would call upon the Lord for salvation, what does he do? He reaches down, as it were, in love and embraces them as the father embraced the prodigal when he came home. The loving arms of Christ wrapped around that desperate sinner, assuring an unworthy sinner of his love, of forgiveness, of eternal life, all on one who did not deserve it. In my mind, I'm speaking autobiographically, remembering my own conversion. I trust that many of you are remembering your own, a similar time of crying out in your sin, having no claim on God, fearful of His holiness, fearful of His judgment, and in a simple look to Christ, in a simple cry for mercy, for deliverance, God saved you. My friend, do you know something about that in your personal experience? Did God not answer you faithfully? And has He not, through weal and through woe, kept you since then, so that you're here now in His presence seeking to hear His Word and seeking to praise Him? Isn't that true? Well, then you have cause to give God praise for His faithful answer. In our text, David was alive because God kept him alive. Otherwise, he would have been in the realm of the dead. God had again displayed His loyal love to David. And now as David is writing this psalm, he wants to live. He wants to praise God. He wants to live unto the praise of God. Look at it there again in verse 3. When he says, O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Lord, I am alive when others in the same condition are now dead. As a Christian, you can say, and you should say, and rehearse in your mind, I am alive here in Christ 
when so, so, so many just like me, just as sinful as me, have not been delivered. Lord, there was nothing about me to distinguish me from them. There was nothing about me that earned a measure of grace that the others did not have. No, 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 no. God was just gracious to you and answered when you called. And now here you are, redeemed, justified, set apart for the purposes of God with a hope of heaven that can never be taken away. Not even Satan himself in all of his supernatural power can sever you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Has God not been faithful to you? Did He not answer you when you called? We praise Him for His faithful answer. Secondly, and these themes all overlap, secondly, David praises God for God's faithful kindness. His faithful kindness. And one of the things about true redemption, about true conversion, is that there wells up, begins to well up in your heart a genuine desire for others to know the grace that has been showered upon you. A desire that wells up in your heart for others to join in praise as well. And David and his experience from the first three verses now motivates him in that manner to call others to join him in praise. Look at verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. The saints, as we've often said, are not a select special group of those who have been meritoriously righteous and are recognized later and enshrined into the halls of the church. That's not true. There's nothing like that. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only perfect one was the Lord Jesus Christ. No, the saints are those who are in a covenant relationship with God, like David. God has set them apart for Himself. He set apart the nation of Israel to be His own possession. And today in the church, He sets us apart individually. He saves us and sets us apart so that our lives would be dedicated to the purpose of His praise so that we would be set apart unto His service, that we would belong to Him, and that He would have the highest affections of our heart. That's what it means to be a saint. It's one that God has set apart by His mercy, not one who has set Himself apart by His works. Every Christian is a saint. It's not a question of how sanctified you are in your daily life. It's a positional statement that you've been set apart by God for the purpose of God. So those are the ones that David is addressing. David, if you are a Christian here today, David addresses you and tells you, sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. This is our blessed privilege, and it is our blessed responsibility. People say, I want to know what the will of God is for my life. Scripture says what the will of God is for your life. This is the will of God, your sanctification. It is God's will for you to give thanks to His holy name. And what David does, having gave, given that call to sing praise to Him, he gives he, he informs our praise with profound insight into the dealings of God. That give us a reflection that like a, like a 
stray beam of sunlight hits a shining metal object in a distance that you otherwise wouldn't have noticed, and the light reflects off the object and nearly blinds you with its brilliance. That's what we have here in verse 5. We get a brilliant ray of light into the manner of God with His children. Verse 5, For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Perhaps this comes to a burdened Christian at a crucial time in your life. It's as though the heavy hand of God is upon you. Circumstances oppress you. Relationships around you fail. Loved ones disappoint you. Finances reversed. And it seems like there's no way out of or a solution to any of it. Understand that God sends those things to you. He sends those things to teach us to trust Him and to depend upon Him. But, beloved, He he does so with a greater purpose in mind. And He does it only for a season, and then He restores the blessing. He did that with Job. Job and his great loss and great suffering through 41 chapters of the book. At the end, God restored him and gave him double of what he originally had. In our Christian experience, even if we live a life of difficulty, sorrow, isolation, and rejection among men, pressured and discouraged, dwelling in isolation in a spiritual wasteland, with a body racked in pain and lacking Christian fellowship to, in your immediate presence to soften the blows. Even if your life is like that, in Christ, it's but for a moment, beloved. This life is but a passing vapor And what you find, what you will find by the promise of God, by the promise of Christ, what you will find after enduring through that difficult experience of life, what you will find when you take your last breath on earth, you exhale your last, and you inhale your first in heaven, you will find that it was worth it all. A moment in the presence of Christ in glory is worth infinitely more than all the multiplied sorrows of life on earth could ever take away from. In fact, in fact, in that first moment that you inhale the atmosphere of heaven, beloved, It will be so glorious, so wonderful, so perfect, so complete, so home that the troubles of this life will be forgotten, never to be called to mind again. God's anger is only for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. If you are suffering, set set it aside for a moment and simply ask yourself, yes, I am suffering, but am I in Christ? Am I safe in the Beloved? Was the rock of ages cleft for me, and am I hiding myself in Him? If so, you have it on the authority of God's perfect, inerrant, infallible Word, that it'll be worth it in the end. 
We're pilgrims passing through. We're not seeking an earthly city anyway, beloved. We're seeking the city that is to come. David, here in Psalm 5, is coming off a severe test. He had suffered under the weight of his illness, but God did not abandon him totally and finally unto his suffering. Sometimes, beloved, sometimes, beloved, that may be all that you have to go on to take the next step forward in the next 15 minutes. But it's enough. It's enough to know the promise of God. God Himself is our comfort, not a change in circumstances. Christ Himself is our comfort, and He is sufficient for all that we face. His promises are enough to give us confidence in what the future holds, regardless if we see the path forward or not. And here, we have a Bible verse that is well worth your memorization if you are in those kinds of chronic afflictions. Beloved, look at it again in verse 5. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night. It may last a while longer than you wish. But, oh, joy comes with the morning. How many times have we been awakened by serious thunderstorms at night and the crash, boom, all around us? Threatening, warnings going off. And yet we wake up in the morning and the smile and clarity of sunshine has returned. The sweet air of restoration fills our nostrils with glory. David uses his experience of having been delivered from suffering to illustrate how God cares for his people. Yes, beloved, he brings us into trials. Some of the most painful and horrific things that you never saw coming. I didn't see this coming, you say to yourself. This has knocked me over. Yes, it sometimes happens even to Christians. Christians who have done nothing to bring it on to themselves. It happens. And when it does, his anger's for a moment, his favor's for a lifetime. But David's making a point here. Over the course of time, across the broad scope of God's dealings with all of his people, across the experience of the people of God through the ages, there is something that emerges as you think about it and contemplate what God does and the outworking of his providence in the lives of his people as we read church history and observe it in our own lives. This is the blessed insight into the faithful kindness of God that we need to see and respond in praise. God does this. God proportions His dealings with us so that over the scope of time and over the scope of experience, we know much more about His blessing than we do His discipline. It's like comparing an, an overnight stay in a cheap motel to the favor of an entire lifetime. The sorrow lasts for a window of time, not a literal 12 hours, a literal 24 hours, you would laugh me out of the room if I tried to tell you that, because you know better from your own experience. But over the course of a lifetime, God's pattern of dealing with His people is to show us much more of His favor, His goodness, His blessing than His discipline. 
And why? Because He's good. Because He's great. Because He's gracious. As Scripture says, He does not deal with us according to our sins. Beloved, did He not show you mercy at the cross? I plead with you to soften your heart toward Him. Did He not show mercy to you at your conversion? If you're not in Christ, is He not showing you mercy even now by genuinely, freely offering you eternal life and the full forgiveness of your sins based on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? If only you would turn to Him in sincere repentance and faith. Do we not know His mercy day by day? All of that to show that in your distress, you can rely on His promises to care for you. Now, admittedly, this is only for His people. But even for the presently unrepentant, beloved, there is a, there is a vast measure of the kindness of God that is displayed to them and is given to them. The rain falls on the unrighteous and the righteous alike. Though they deserve immediate judgment, God withholds it. God delays it to give them time to repent, to gather in the elect. But yes, His anger on the unrepentant at the end, it will last for eternity. But for those of us that are His, His grace and favor will be upon us for all eternity. The child of God hears that and praises God for His faithful kindness. God, You've answered my prayers over the course of time. I've seen many, many answers. You've been good. You've been faithful. Maybe it was delayed for many years. But in the end, you proved yourself true to your promises. God, you've shown me so much kindness. All I can do, God, is praise you. You are great. You are good. You are gracious. And I give thanks to your holy name for being that way to me, no matter what else is happening around me. We come to a third point in this psalm, which is praise for God's faithful patience. His faithful patience. And I think the longer we go in Christ, the more we will know something of this as we are honest with ourselves, maybe about besetting sins, honest with ourselves about times of stubbornness in the past, times where we let our hearts grow cold, put his blessed book on the shelf and didn't come back for days, weeks, heaven forbid. But when we came back, what we found, just like, again, the prodigal son rising from the pig slop, saying, I'll go to my father, maybe he'll be gracious, maybe he'll just let me be his servant. I've certainly forfeited the privilege of being a son Maybe I can at least be a slave in his household. He had, a, he had a meager idea of his father's love, a meager idea of his father's grace. And he got within eyesight of his dear blessed father, whose heart, I trust, I, I promise you, he had broken his father's heart with his acts of rejection. I promise you that. Father, let him go. And then he sees a figure on the horizon, dust kicking up around the feet. It's my son. And he runs. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your... Kill the fatted calf. My son is home. We must rejoice. Patient love. Patient kindness told in that story to illustrate 
at a human level, the greater love and grace of God himself. David had strayed, we see in verse 6. He says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. David's looking back at a time when perhaps in his younger days, he was arrogant. He was self-reliant. He needed nothing. Perhaps for some of us, earthly security is causing us to sin in similar ways. There's so much in the bank account, it's all good. Look at what I've done with my career. Look what I've accomplished. Apart from giving thanks to God for it. What happened in David's life is that he had that self-reliant, arrogant spirit at some time, at some point in his life that he's confessing, acknowledging here. And then the suffering intervened. And the intervening suffering cured him of that pride. The illness had a purifying effect on his soul. And we should look and realize that this is what God often does. He did it with the Apostle Paul. And it teaches us to view our afflictions from a different perspective. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is defending his apostleship. Paul, a man of great faithfulness in ministry, great love for the church of Corinth, was accused of being an imposter. Much like Christ was, much like the prophets were, much like the apostles were, Paul entered into that experience. And he's defending his apostleship from a position of weakness. We read in verse 12, chapter 1, he said, I must go on boasting. He's boasting in order to show that he is a true apostle and to, by the exposition of his true apostleship, it exposes the false apostles that the Corinthians had let influence them, that they had embraced at the cost of Paul. Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained about it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And what he's describing here, he's talking about what happened to him. He had unique spiritual experiences that were of a magnificent order that others had not had. He says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in, in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, he's referring to himself in the third person, on behalf of this man who was chosen by God for this purpose, I'll boast on his behalf to defend the office. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, if I wanted to boast about my experiences, I wouldn't be a fool because I'd only be speaking the truth. It's what really happened. And I was the one. But he says, I don't boast about that so that no one will think more of me than he sees in me or hears in me. God gave him a gift. Here's the point for today. Verse 7, God gave him a gift that he didn't want. Verse 7, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, uh-uh, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God sent suffering to Paul. He sent suffering to you. Understand that perhaps there is a negative spiritual purpose in it, 
to keep you from conceit, from pride over the legitimate things that you have accomplished. So God gives you, he touches as it were, he touches you as he touched Jacob's hip, dislocates your spiritual hip so that you limp through life as a reminder of your need for his grace. Paul does not resent that. He doesn't resent it. What an incredible thing. He said, if God is going to display his grace in my weakness, then let's talk all about my weakness. Let's focus all on that so that the power of God is released in me and through me to the glory of Jesus Christ. David, going back to Psalm 30, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. That was a boastful, proud statement. Now I see what the reality was. Verse 7, it was by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. Without you, I'm nothing. The mountain symbolizes stability. The current place of blessing at the dedication is a gift from God, not something that David produced in his own effort. He gives God all of the glory for what he has done. He goes on in verse 8, and he remembers again, looking back at prior spiritual experience, he, he remembers how he bargained with God for his life. Remember, he's in a position of praise now, and so this is a flashback. Verse 8, he said, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? There's an urgency and an argument to his prayer to God. He's given God reasons to answer his prayer. In his suffering, David asked God to spare his life so that David could live to praise God. David is not making a point about what happens in the afterlife to people who have died. His point is this. He says, God, if you send me to the grave, I won't be here on earth to magnify you before men. If I die an early death, who's going to praise you in my place? Is the dust that covers my bones going to rise up and speak the greatness of your name? Will the ground that covers my coffin be able to speak as if it were a living voice? What David is saying here, he's saying, God, I simply want to live so that I could praise you among the living. David wanted to be an instrument that could give glory to God and lead others to do the same. God, there's a higher purpose to my request for deliverance than just my physical comfort. There's a higher purpose than just trying to escape the suffering which in Paul's case, we're collapsing biblical history here, which in Paul's case had a, a healthy purpose for him. He says, I'm not asking you to take that away for my sake so that I can return to my comfort and my arrogance. God, I'm not asking for that sake. I'm just asking you to be merciful so that I can be an instrument of praise to the God that I love. Here in Psalm 30, we read the effect of that prayer. David is praising God for his faithfulness after the cloud of suffering had passed from his life. The anger for a nighttime was gone. The favor had been restored. David is the one out of the ten who comes back to give praise. The prayer in his suffering was simple. And beloved, you can use this when you don't know what to ask. I've prayed in this vein so many times, and I pray in this vein more the older I get. 
the longer I go in Christ, the more it comes down to this. Verse 10, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. God, I don't, I don't know what circumstances are best. Paul asked for the thorn to be removed, and God told him no three times. Paul was praying amiss, as it were, because God had a greater purpose. But when you ask, when you appeal to God, you don't know, the, you don't know how to sort out the circumstances. You don't know what providence is. You don't know what God's going to do in the future. But when you simply go to God and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, show kindness to me. You're appealing directly to the very nature of God. God, just treat me like you are. Be to me who you are, and I'll be fine. Come what the circumstances may be. Reminds me of the prayer in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. It said, in wrath, remember mercy. God, when judgment comes, just remember that you're a merciful God as you look down on us. And if you'll do that, it will be enough. Well, having recited his past, David now goes into the fourth point, the final section, and describes the present and future effects of the kindness of God, verses 11 and 12. Here he is writing in the present, having come through the storms, God having blessed him, kept him, rescued him. Now in verse 11, He's giving his present experience and thanking God in that. Praising God, fourth point here, for his faithful restoration. Faithful restoration. Verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David wants everyone to know how faithful God has been to him so that they'll join in the praise. He wants to share the joy with others so that the joy will splash over on them as well. He's gone from sorrowful mourning to joyful dancing. The sackcloth of sorrow and repentance has been set aside because its purpose has been fulfilled and now he's clothed with gladness. And this, there's this new exclamation of his soul. Oh God, I will give thanks to you forever. David had been brought low. And it had silenced him for a time. But not anymore. Now he lifts his soul in verbal praise, in vertical praise, that directs attention to the praise of God. In a literary way, it's like you looking up here at the platform. David takes the, your attention as a reader, and he gathers it up, and then he lifts it up to heaven so that you would see God, not him, so that you would praise God for his faithfulness that is so great his kindness, his patience, which is so wonderful, so that you would add to the voices raising up to heaven in gratitude to God. David's experience has illustrated eternal truths about the nature of God and how he blesses his people. He's a God who gives faithful answers. He's a God of faithful kindness faithful patience, faithful restoration. With those truths deep in his soul, those truths expressed by his pen, he commits to honor God forever. You know, the best thing about being in heaven forever, it's not going to be because we're with our friends although that will be good. 
It's not going to be because the sorrows of this life are ended, but although that will be good. Those are incidental benefits. The greatest, the highest joy, the greatest, the highest privilege of being in heaven is that we are going to be in the immediate presence of our Lord and Savior and to give Him the praise and honor that is rightfully His due. The praise and honor which is denied to Him by men around us, those that rebel against Him in this fallen world that is under the power of the Prince of the Air, to finally, to finally, finally, to be in a realm where everyone is on the same page, the same wavelength, coming out of the same desire of heart. Christ, you are great. I join and I sing in praising your goodness, your greatness, and your grace. And there is no remaining sin in me to hinder my expression. There are no rebels around me to dilute the praise. There's no earthly affections competing for my attention. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And the pinnacle of the reason for which he created us will be fulfilled. My beloved Christian friend, will you praise him for that? Will you trust him for that? Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your mercies which are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. Thanks for listening to Pastor Don Green from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information, Don's complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted by Don Green, all rights reserved.